Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Art vs. Commerce podcast, sponsored again by the Masters in Motion Filmmaking Conference, a three-day conference that happens down in Austin, Texas, uh, with guest speakers have included, you know, DP of Game of Thrones, editor of Breaking Bad, editor of Birdman, production designer and master of none. Uh, it's a great event, a lot of information, but also a great social event. Um, people come in as attendees from all over the country and the world, and um, get together and I think that the the social aspects are really the highlight uh, and what's also cool is that the guest speakers tend to um, they don't just come in for their conference and then get out I think that they uh, they all come out you you get to have you know real conversations with them and uh, that's what makes it uh, unique and awesome for more information on that it's shooteditlearn.com and one of the other speakers from uh, this year's event Jeffrey Hagerman he was giving a talk on what he does uh, onset color and data management and um, sat down with him for this episode. And uh, it's really astonishing. He is, he is figuring out a way to experience being on massive sets and working closely with you know, the, some of the industry's best DPs. He, he continually works with Janusz Kaminski, who is Steven Spielberg's um, you know, cinematographer and has been for the past 20 years. And um, Jeffrey has found himself in a position where he is standing right alongside DPs of that, of that um, stature and helping them figure out the, the look and feel of, of the onset color, which then obviously um, impacts the final color greatly, uh, especially if you're going for something that has a really heavy look, like something he did. He worked on uh, Daredevil, which went for, a, you know, very dark look, had to be shot precisely if you're really going to come out with that as a finished product. And so he's a big part of how these things look. At this point, you know, it's um, it's a pretty impressive uh, credit list. Uh, and it also includes not just motion pictures, but it also includes, you know, Super Bowl commercials. I feel, I, you know, he must do a couple every year. And so he's in constant demand to help execute at really high levels so that you are dialing in everything to a, a quite, quite a precision, um, which has put him in a really unique position because this a DIT has kind of become morphed into it's morphing into something new, uh, and I guess it's been going on for a few years now. But it's at a point where there's a lot of it's not just data management; it's also there's a lot of authorship in a way where you are helping define how these things look. And you know, it's everything on sets of collaboration. So if you're having if you're standing in the room with the director and the DP and you're talking about how you want it, how they want it to look and they're looking to you to, you know, back that up technically, obviously you can have an impact. And so that's where he finds himself. He came up through um, cinematography and, uh, you know, I think he still shoots his own stuff on the side, but as he describes it in the episode, you know, it, it, he has no qualms in, with the fact that he's not shooting particularly because he is right alongside some of the best in the world and um, being a really huge asset for them to achieve what they're doing. Uh, so it's really cool. Um, and the way that he speaks about it, you know, he, he doesn't hold back. I'll say that. And um, and, I, and I think that's great. I think that we can all learn from someone who is uh, on the front line, um, technologically speaking, and is able to... Um, share so much and be so honest about what it what it takes and and how you know joining the union and what that meant for him and you know I I think that um hearing about his backstory and how he got here is really fascinating because he's only you know he's in his I think maybe only 30 uh so to do all of that very quickly is really impressive and um really enjoyed this one especially because I think that 
a lot of people that I've been talking to on this podcast who are creators, they are trying to get to a place where they are on, you know, these massive Hollywood blockbuster, $200 million sets. And Hagerman's there, you know, oftentimes not, you know, a lot of times he, he might be pulling, uh, not, not focus, but he's pulling the iris and changing the exposure, at, you know, on certain technically advanced shots. And so he's like right in the, right in the thick of it. And it's a, it's really cool to pick his brain. So, um, Thanks for being here. I've been uh, checking out. iTunes has been getting some great reviews on the show, so thank you so much for that. And if you could just uh, spread it around, get it out there. It's been it's it's, it's fun making, and uh, thanks y'all for being here. I uh, went to the University of Arizona, and I wanted a summer job that just had air conditioning. And luckily, through some benevolent help uh, from some family friends, I got a job at the University of Arizona Health Sciences Department making some anti-tobacco videos. And I didn't really know I wanted to do that at all. I was kind of techy, and the G4 just came out with a 533 megahertz dual-core processor that had a DVD burner. And I was like, had Final Cut version 1, and I was rocking it. And that was all, you didn't go to, when... What did you go to college for? Initially? Uh, business initially. So it was a, a summer job when I was in business school. And I was like, well, forget business. This is way more fun. When did you realize that how much fun that was comparatively? You, was there a moment? Um, it was just seeing that you could go out and shoot and edit and put together something. And uh, there were all these people involved, but you could really be one of the gatekeepers almost of, of, a, of a package or of a not a product, but of, of content because it's really a collaborative effort, but there's certain key people in the process and you're definitely trying to manage all these expectations. And I was like, when you look at something, it's like, wow, you did that. That's fun. Yeah. So you were doing that over the summer and at what point you were still in business school? Like when did that, when did all that switch and what was the impetus for that? Um, as soon as I went back to school that, uh, that, fall that it was September we got back into school I kind of had applied to UCLA and NYU and uh, I was really thinking hard about film school so I got accepted to NYU and I was a little conflicted because I didn't know how much I wanted to take this I didn't see it as a as a life yet I couldn't I couldn't grasp that so instead of going to NYU and being an art student with six figures in debt I went to uh, Vancouver Film School and that was a one-year program. Kevin Smith had gone there. I was really a big fan of Clerks. And I was like, well, I'm 18. I can drink legally in Canada. The dollar was worth way more. And I was like, let's, let's see what Canada's about. When you were going there, did you know that, what your interest in film was? or were you Not really. I, w- I mean, I was 18. I, could, I can't say I knew that much, but it seemed like better than business school. I mean, I'd just taken, you know, inventory flow systems and accounting. So it seemed a lot more... Sounds riveting. It seemed a lot more interesting than that. So it was fun and it was a chance to get out really on my own for the first time. And as you were going through that program, were the, what, what were the moments that st- stuck out? Like, wh- when did you realize that either camera department or color, that that specifically really grabbed you? Um, I think it was pretty early on. We were just sent out with a Bolex H16 and some 50 foot daylight cans of 16 mil to make little projects. And I was like, this is awesome. This is, this is for me. 
and it was a, a pretty immersive program. You could you do producing, you direct, you'd shoot, you'd edit, you'd do sound. So you get to see all those facets. But after delving into the scope of pretty much these various projects with all these uh, these different people, I realized that camera department and making the image was really what I was most interested in. Yeah, and um, did that school at all talk to talk about how to be professional in it or like not really i mean the cool thing was was vancouver was definitely hollywood north for a minute so while i was in school i got to go on set and uh with brian singer on x-men and i got to really see firsthand what filmmakers were doing on set and i feel like that was the best education because there's so much you can you can teach there's so much you can talk about there's so much you can learn from a textbook but actually being on set is that's that's where it happens. That's where you see how it the process unfolds. Yeah. And I mean, when you were in this position and you realize that this is what I want to be doing, what thoughts were you having in terms of how am I going to make this practical for myself? How am I, like, what steps am I going to take once I'm I really done? had no idea how to... you were to, only there for a year, right? You said? I was only there for a year. I really had no idea how to make it into a career yet at that point. I uh, went to Coachella over, over our break, met a girl... And she was still at school in University of Arizona. So after I graduated, I basically left Canada because I had a, a visa and my visa was going to run out. Went back to Arizona, followed her, and then convinced her that Canada's awesome and you should move to Canada. So then we moved back up there. I got uh, a visa and I started out initially doing sound stuff because that was just some connections and friends that I knew worked at a place called Sharp Sound in Vancouver. And I was like, well... These are the people I know, and this is part of making movies. So I'll like hang out with these guys. And so, how long were you doing like onset stuff or post? Um, mostly post mixing, Pro Tools, that kind of stuff. And then uh, friends of friends, we'd get together, shoot some forty-eight hour projects and little stuff like that. But it never, a couple mountain biking videos, things like that. But it never really was a an income generating thing. I had my my girl going to school at UBC. I had a pretty cush little house. We had a cat. And then one day I got a call from one of my friends who I'd been doing sound stuff with. He'd moved to Toronto and he was like, I really need some help here. I'm uh, a little over my head. I want to fly you out to Toronto to work on a project. And I was like, Oh, okay, let's do it. And what was that project? Um, that was uh gangster rap. So he'd met someone who was, uh, an A&R in the music scene in Toronto and we started doing music videos pretty pretty regularly like once or twice a week either following around talent or shooting and producing music videos and i mean i think i saw some of those old photos that you were posting but they're they're like big names it was like 50 cent jim jones duke the god jewel santana um raekwon the chef rizza and all of Cameron. it. So it was it was gangster rap so for you, sure. Yeah, but it was also tier like top tier people. I yeah. mean the big big music industry people. Yeah. And how and what were you doing on those sets? Uh I had a one DS Mark II that was a sixteen megapixel full frame digital SLR, like a big cannon. And we had uh two XL twos. You were shooting though. So I was stills and video. I'd have a, a they... carabiner and on one latch would be the camera strap for the stills and the other latch would be the camera strap for the XL2 and then the carabiner would connect them both around my neck so they wouldn't either one wouldn't fall off 
<laughs> but how wh- how are they how'd you get that job if they were willing if you if you're if you didn't have a reel yet or or anything like how are you getting that job sure well film what i've discovered in my process my journey through the industry is it's really all about relationships i mean you can buy any number of pieces of gear and say i'm gonna get work with this piece of gear but unless you i found you really have relationships existing it's it's not the same focus on cultivating relationships focus on finding the right people who will allow you to to shine or see a talent in you and allow you to do things definitely but I, I agree completely. Did you feel that you were in over your head when you walked onto a set with like 50 Cent and this and the... the I felt pit- I was right where I wanted to be. I, I, it wasn't over my head. I was like, this is what I wanted to do. And suddenly, I remember on the plane flying from, from Vancouver, I read the Rolling Stone article for the massacre and listened to 50 Cent Candy Shop in my, my iPhone or... It was an iPad at that point, iPod. iPod, yeah. Yeah, this was like going back. So I was like, wow. And then I got there and like the next week I met 50 Cent. It was, it was kind of, <laughs> but it was surreal. all relationships. It was definitely all relationships. Like the talent was still, I don't think I'd cultivated the talent enough yet, but these people in this genre had given me an opportunity where I could, I could shoot and make mistakes and really learn from the mistakes. Cause if you're on a tour with someone, you're, you're there to get the content. And if they're not happy or their producer, or the A&R is not happy from the label, they'll let you know real quick. And then you, yeah. you, uh, you learn. Cause how old were you at this I point? I was 22. And that's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders, like age wise and experience wise. Did they know that you because I just I'm just trying to think if this would even happen now and maybe maybe it would depending on who knows who but just the fact that now like you know with having a reel on the internet and and needing to provide so much proof mm-hmm. that that was lacking for you in this moment I mean we I was lucky that I had the gear I had the relationships and I had the the passion to just yeah be there 12 hours or 14 hours or however long it took you were there maybe you were only shooting for an hour or two but the rest of the time you were engaging and personable enough and smart enough to be in the way, but out of the way. Cause you're always, yeah. there's no way to take a photo without being in, in that environment with those people. So you definitely got to get them comfortable with you. I'm here to take your picture. And then slowly, but surely they really developed a trust. And then that came across in the images and in the content. Yeah, definitely. How, how long was, was that? Were that you like in that for, circus? For a bit, we started a clothing line called I'm Not a Rapper. We made shirts. It was I'm Not a Rapper. The back said, I'm just a hustler that can rap good. So we got that on the Tom Green show because he was Canadian. The Tom Green show. The game wore it. 50 Cent wore it. Uh, I came to New York to film the Puerto Rican Day Parade with Dipset. And we were in the Garment District and we saw bootlegs of our shirts. And I was like, this is crazy. Yeah. So then the clothing line spun into... uh, paper like a physical paper magazine that would come out once a month and then eventually that also spun off into a hour-long urban tv show that was once a week so we had i'm not a rapper the clothing line i'm not a rapper the uh magazine and i'm not a rapper the branded tv content thing so is it fair to say that some of the business stuff you had learned 
at school was coming back. It definitely play? applied. It definitely applied. And later on in my career in advertising and uh, further, people definitely looked back at that and said, wow, this this is one of the first times that we could point to that someone did this really across a, a spectrum like you did. Yeah. Um, in that time, what were, were there any really defining moments that really stick out either on set or from making, you know, your favorite piece of content, like anything that was big where you had a moment, you're like, Oh man, like this is Uh, 50 cent was in Toronto with James Sheridan shooting get rich or die trying. And our friend, his name was Apple. He drove around in a Humvee and he met all the the artists that came to town. He was like, I I got us a video. We were like, cool. What, what's the video? And he's like, well, you know, we're, we're gonna we're gonna figure it out. But it's with Fifty Cent. And we're like, me and my friend Martin Berrigan, my business partner, we're like, this is great. So we we got some lights actually from the film set. Went down to a club that we usually did some promotional stuff in and shot shot in for their events called System Soundbar. And we set up a shot, banged it out really quick. It was uh, with a director named Dan Millimit. He goes by Dan the Man. And uh, that relationship kind of, that connection proved proved really long-lasting because that brought me basically to New York from Canada. Yeah. And so at any point in this process, are you thinking past, well, clearly you must have been a little bit with developing the, the clothing line that then becomes uh, paper and all of that, but were you thinking... How much are you, were you like plotting what was going to happen next and where you wanted this whole career to go? Most like, of it was just in the moment. It was just being in the moment and answering the phone and going to meetings and trying to really say, I can represent your brand visually, whatever that brand was. Here's the pictures. Here's, here's me. Let's, let's go do it. Yeah. I remember going back uh, to Vancouver and uh, this was right before I broke up with my girlfriend, but we were at a party with a bunch of mutual friends and they were like, what have you been doing in Toronto? And I was like, oh, we shot a video with 50 Cent. And they were just like, get out of here. Like, you don't need to lie to us. And it was like, <laughs> we're, we're well, not it lying. is pretty remarkable. Like, but it was like, I didn't have a, I had a flip phone. You know, I didn't have an iPhone that I could just pull out and be like, here's the photo. Yeah. There's no Instagram. It was kind of like, what, what do you mean? Yeah. yeah it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't uh, believable. Definitely. What, um, <laughs> where did, it, where did it go after that? Um, we met up with a couple other record labels. Capital Profit Records was one and uh, Much Music and just got in with some A&Rs there and started doing, I think music videos are a great way as uh, someone coming up to, to develop a craft and still make money. I don't think short films are that lucrative and in Canada, especially are they music, actually... Like now you think? I feel like the music Even now lost in, the- in Canada, they have, they have grants called Video Fact Money. And they still give out, you know, twenty to thirty thousand dollars to make a video, hmm. and that's something. As someone, I came up with, you know, five Ds didn't shoot video yet, so I had, as someone coming up with a stills camera and an XL two, like that was the way, the way up. And we got so much work from people paying five thousand dollars cash out of brown bags for something, and that doesn't go as far as like a connection ship and relationship with a label. And once you get that secured once they see what you can do they give you more money and then how you spend that and how you deliver with a final product gains their trust and then it it grows to a a bigger and bigger thing and opens doors yeah and then but you you left music i guess or 
Not um, not not left, but it became less of the focus. What what did you transition into? I did a music video for this artist Belly, who's on Capital Profit Records, and uh, it was called A History of Violence, and we made kind of a political music video. It got on Much Music and uh, got really popular. The artist got on Geraldo Rivera with it and got interviewed about the uh, Palestinian conflict, peace in the Middle East, and that sort of thing. So shortly after that video dropped, um, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now!, this television news independent media thing that I'd listen to like every morning all the time, called me up out of the blue. It was like, we're looking for a, uh, a TV producer for our show in New York. And I was like, in Toronto, like, all right, I'll be in New York next week and we can have an interview. And I never really, I'd always had respect for journalism and, and respect for people documenting the truth and, and bringing a voice to the voiceless. But I'd never thought of myself as a journalist. Yeah. So one thing led to another. I knew Final Cut Pro. I knew how to shoot and uh, figured out how to book satellite feeds and book studios and interview Bill Clinton and all these other people. So that was a turn, but it was still, I felt I was capturing images and yeah. telling stories so it was there's a bunch of different facets of how you can capture images and tell stories but i still felt like i was capturing images and telling stories yeah i guess in that way it didn't really it didn't change no and we're and as that grew what were you thinking were you ups was it weird leaving music did you feel like you were leaving something behind or like what, what what's the mental process as you're Rising the ranks of something different now. I still had a production company that, that made music videos, but I definitely had to take more of a back seat to that because I had a full-time job now, booking news feeds, researching stories, flying around, shooting various parts of the country, and, and also gathering content from all these independent sources and bringing it together and trying to make something cohesive. So there's so much content out there when you have to aggregate things and look through stuff. It just helped me see... How do I want to shoot differently? I have all these pieces that people have gone out and spent their own time to to capture and document and send me. But here's this, this, this is wrong with them. So it helped me really, through other people's mistakes, learn how to shoot packages better and really, really create a, a not shot list, but really just in your head, having to edit your own content helps you be way more informed as a shooter. Yeah. So sure. that really dialed that in for me in that narrative. But I, I definitely took a backseat to the music videos and, uh, and for you better or worse. Yeah, you weren't worried about it. Like, because I could see, I think a lot of us end up, we all get in in one, in one facet of the industry or one genre, what have you. And then when other things start knocking, it's a hard, it's hard to make that decision. You don't know which is better. I just kind of pivoted yeah. and went in a different direction. And then, after 2008, after the presidential elections, um, a bunch of people from Democracy Now! got arrested in Minneapolis at the Democratic National Convention. And that was the point in my life where I was like, I love doing this, but, you know. For, they were arrested for what? Um, protesting? It was part of a protest, but they were journalists and they were kind of wrongfully arrested. It eventually got settled in a civil suit. But at the time, I was like, I don't, you know, I believe in this, but I don't want to get arrested for uh, doing my job. Yeah. So then I transitioned again to uh, an advertising agency, J. Walter Thompson, and I did uh, post-production as a director of operations for JW2. Why'd so that, you make that, how'd you make that decision to go to advertising of, uh, 
beyond like why didn't why wasn't oh i'm gonna go back to music um well the music was kind of branding is is part of advertising and i'd i'd uh done some things of recognition enough that in the ad world i had some friends and i just capitalized on those connections and it was it was a full-time job but it paid really well i was 25 and it was a six-figure income so i was like okay let's do that and then managerial wise i had some skills from university that held over to that but once once i climbed that peak and got on top of that everyone in my family was like this is what you're supposed to do this is this is it you've made it and i really felt less and less like i'd made anything and i was just showing up for appearances and this is a a time so at a point when you were making the most money that you had you also felt the least connected yeah the least connected i mean i was doing great work it was it was less uh creative and more technical and i kept wanting to do side projects on the weekend but just the scope oh, of yeah, my i was going to ask you now had this financial freedom to do that but it was probably the scope so of my obligations at work just really limited anything i could do even even to the point of seeing friends it was like i'm making this money let's let's go somewhere and do something i'm only available you know maybe saturday night yeah well, that's most people. You it's know? really crazy. I mean, you at least had Saturday night, but that, that, which, if you're looking around you at, at a lot of Manhattan people going into office buildings, like that's what they have. Uh, but you were looking at that and just not satisfied at all. I just wasn't satisfied with that. And then the managerial aspect, eventually I was asked to make decisions about firing people or downsizing the uh, pool that worked under me. And I'd really felt that I cultivated a lot of strong relationships with, with my colleagues and uh, the people that worked under me. And that dichotomy really changed once I had to, you know, fire 10 or 15 people out of a pool of, of 30. Then that whole dynamic that I had and tried to cultivate with people kind of deteriorated and fell apart. And I got to the point where I realized that that's not, I'm good at it. I could do it, but that wasn't for me. Yeah. And as you, so when you first, when you're starting to realize that this is not where I want to be working, how, how long did you stay on at, while you were dealing with these mental thoughts and how are you, where were you looking to, to make the move? Cause I feel like there's a lot of people out there who are in a job like that, wanting to be doing something more creative and they feel stuck or, or they're not sure what, where to make the next change. Now, obviously your story is a little different because it's not like you were in that from college or something. So you did have knowledge about how to do things outside of that realm, but how, how are, how'd you plot that move away? It was real quick. I mean, the people I had to fire that happened in, uh, in late July. And then I basically left and was like, I'm just going to Burning Man. And that was the end of <laughs> August. So I hung out for like four weeks and, and told them my side of the story. And basically all they offered to do was pay me more money and, uh, have me do more, more obligations. And, uh, it's, it's tough in the corporate world. Cause you're really, your identity as an individual is definitely augmented over the scope of a of a corporation of a of an entity at that scale and you're not allowed to do your best i feel a lot of times because your work is obfuscated in the hierarchy of of deliverables or the hierarchy of these meetings and that meeting yeah and this group and that group and we're coming together and then 
people that you might think you're you're doing something favorably for are using you or using a project you're involved with to influence some wholly other thing that's beyond your scope. There's a lot scope. of political layers. There's a lot of layers to it. And that's that's when I realized that advertising, while I love making commercials now and being employed on commercials, the the back end of it definitely wasn't wasn't for me. Yeah. And then where were you looking? I wasn't looking for anything. I'd, I'd kind of saved money and uh, I still had uh, a studio in Dumbo and I still had a production company that I was kind of doing side things on, but not hands on. I was more orchestrating and producing. So after Burning Man, I came back and we uh, I used some relationships I had with Sony BMG to do a hip hop Broadway show with Buster Rhymes and Jim Jones. So it kind of quickly again transferred back to music. Oh, you're, so it you're did available. Kind of, yeah, you 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 relied on what you had. Yeah, I felt back makes sense. On, and on what I had, and then I just got to a point at that point where I knew what I could do with a a five D and a, a airy lighting package, and I'd seen it, and it was good work. It was work that I was getting paid for. You know, some of it was on MTV, but I just butted up against a wall I felt with as much this is all I can do and and it doesn't scale me as an individual and then I saw the dynamic of of production is is a team effort and to be part of a team led me to uh the International Cinematographers Guild and uh to join the union yeah because I, I was I'm very curious about this conversation I've been looking forward to talking to you about it when you decided to join what what was the union offering that you alone couldn't do because i think people some people are conflicted about joining at a certain level if you want to work with certain artists or you want to work on certain projects that's just a requisite whether it be for insurance purposes or uh some other particular the the union is definitely a requirement so i didn't fret about it too much i saw other people that were doing what i wanted to do and I was like, well, they're in the union. Okay, I guess I should join the union. It was that simple. I would read American Cinematographer and I would look at everyone in the ASC photos. And sure enough, every ASC member's a local 600 International Cinematographers Guild member too. So these people that I were looking up to and, and uh, the Deacons or the Kaminskys were, were already in this union. I, I just, a lot of times, I just kind of followed people that did what I wanted to do and I that resonated their work resonated with me and those were the people I chose to follow and the union kind of made sense yeah um did you find it difficult the first year was definitely difficult I mean they uh at least for the camera union they don't really offer you work they want you to be personable and spend time on set and cultivate relationships for yourself but creates kind of a conundrum of if you can't get on set because you don't know anyone, how can you meet people to get more work on yeah. set? So the first year was definitely the the most difficult, but after that... Were you ever questioning your decision? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I... Uh, how are you reconciling that thought? I didn't have any other options. I really don't know how to do anything else but uh, pick up a camera and, and make beautiful pictures. I'll like talk to people... Not about the technical aspects of it, but 
usually about emotions. What, what do you want to capture? What do you want this piece to say? What emotions do you want to elicit? And whether it's a still shoot or a 30 second spot or a music video, I kind of try to speak in emotional terms. And then in my mind, I have an idea of how to elicit those responses or capture those emotions visually. Yeah. So I just don't know how to do anything else. Yeah. So that must have, that must have been really fucking scary. It was scary, but it's also, I mean, the greater the risk, I think the greater the reward too. And you have to believe in yourself. And I think through giving myself less and less options for other things kept me passionate and kept me focused on what I really wanted to do. So when you're living through that year of conundrum, how are you, how'd you make it work? Like what's, what was your answer to dealing with the catch 22? It was really relationships and the relationship that I was able to cultivate was with a company called Off Hollywood and uh, Off Hollywood had some offices on Broadway and Prince and 3D was really big. This is like, you know, 09, the red cameras just coming out and uh, they were the really the place in New York City to get a red camera. So I went in there, told them, you know, I'm Jeffrey Hagerman. This is what I do. I really like what you guys do. We should work together. They were like, we don't have any work for you. Get out of here. So uh, I got really a little bummed out. My wife was like, well, you should go back and, and try again. So I went back again, saw the prep techs on the floor, saw the camera department people, and uh, went upstairs to where they had post, talked to the post people too. And they're like, what are you doing here? What are you doing? You would just like walk in, hoping walk to in, chat? Try to chat with them. Yeah. They said, no, get out of here. So, uh, the fourth time I did that, I the came back. Uh, they were like, oh, you, what are you doing here again? I was like, yeah, you know, I really, really think I got what it takes to work with you guys. And uh, yeah, I'm available. I'd love to work with you. And they were like, well, it just turns out we have this this 3D project for Discovery Net doing a Civil War reenactment that we want to shoot in 3D down in Manassas. And uh, why don't you grab all this gear, hop in a van with uh, this guy and go do it. And I guess you were union, so like they knew that you had a certain level of ability and mm-hmm. technical understanding. Yeah, yeah. That that relationship definitely helped me get through doors or get connections that I wouldn't have otherwise had alone. Interesting. So it, I chose to partner a bit with the studio. And I mean, Mark Peterson, Alde Sanchez, they really helped me get into a production mode that I alone wouldn't have been able to get into as quickly so i was prepping those cameras making sure that the early the early epic had some issues and and making sure that that camera performed to the best level it could technically required a tech so i went from shooting in post to onset and color and it was a a pretty fun transition yeah what um at what point was it immediate where you were like, okay, like I, 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 I did it. Like I found, I, I figured out, like I feel Not more secure. All. When did you feel secure? Do you I, feel secure? I mean, to be honest, I still don't feel secure. I yeah. think sometimes it's a freelance thing. After every job, sometimes, especially long form jobs, I'm just like, well, that's over. Uh, everyone's going to see through me and I'm never going to get another call again. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I should probably sell all this gear and maybe go travel the world for a while and, get some new bearings but uh the phone keeps ringing and that's just 
it's not self-doubt. I think it's a good thing, but it's just you don't have security in this business. Your best security is is your work and uh, the relationships that you cultivate. Yeah. And when, when, yeah, definitely. When you were transitioning, when they were kind of pushing you more towards doing onset color mm-hmm. versus shooting, was that a conflict for you? Because you were like, oh man, they're pushing me away from what I want to be doing. How'd you feel? About I didn't it? think of it as a conflict because I saw what I was doing with a couple open face one Ks and some Dito lights. And now I'm on set with an ASC member like Tom Houghton and, uh, seeing that I was doing the same things just with, with different fixtures and being able to be on set with an ASC DP where you have the iris and you're talking about color and lighting ratios is pretty rewarding if you're a shooter yourself because yeah, you need to have a familiarity with that language to be able to even have a dialogue with them. But yeah, by all means being in that environment and having that type of responsibility, it's all wonderful, but, but you all, you're also not shooting and it, it, it had gone that's through your balance. Mind? That's, that's always, I, I don't do anything else. I think the definition of an artist is someone who gets paid through their art. So I work every day either as a as a phantom operator or an onset colorist, and then the money I make from that and the relationships I cultivate on set I use to fund and uh, employ my friends on my own projects. Yeah, and I think it's it's always a balance. I I probably do two or three big things a month, but they're not at the same level as. Uh, Super Bowl ad or you mean like, uh, like personal personal projects yeah something for MTV something for uh, you know Refinery29 or online brands or media outlets those are great things that's work but I don't get enough work at that level to fully support my lifestyle living in New York right 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 um, and now that now that you're on these much larger sets and working alongside ASC guys I'm curious what What's changed? What what do you what did you notice that was different in, in terms of like the way that people talk about the craft or the 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 small moments where people are discussing work or or how to do the art? Did did you notice a shift? Like what are you hearing from the world's best it, casually in conversation that might be different than when you are on those smaller shoots two to three times a month? Well, I mean, regardless of where you're at in in your career there's there's always a level of self-doubt I feel like I just worked with uh Ed Lackman on a project with Todd Salons called Wiener Dog which just got into Sundance and this was one of Ed's first fully digital shoots and he had his light meters and his spot meters he had like five meters for the first week and he'd he'd go around every light and check everything and then he'd come over to me on on my cart and ask me what I thought and I'd tell him you know you're you're two stops over on the key you're stopping a half under here on the fill and uh i think we should be at a four and he was like that's right where i think we should be and after that he was able to just put the meters away and focus on the story and how that unfolded with the director and left me to dealing with the the technical parameters of of exposing the image given that i would keep us in a range where he wanted to be stopwise but he still had that level of of doubt in himself that he would meter that much and and do all that and i just reassured him that you can you can step back and focus on uh on on the story yeah 
and the image is part of the story, but not on the technical aspects of capturing the image. And this is a person that shot so many amazing films on film. He doesn't need, I didn't feel he needed any help, but it's a new medium for people. And that being the case, he definitely benefited from being able to set looks and really craft emotional elements on set with the color. Everyone's looking at the same monitor. We're all there. Yeah, you let him start to focus on the more, the high concept stuff. Yeah, which is, and a lot of times I would set a look that I thought was correct, and he'd be like, oh, this is much too pretty, you know, put green in the mid-tones and really dirty it up. And I'm like, ugh. So I was always trying to start from a point of balancing the scene out to make it visually, not commercial, but but visually pleasing. And a lot of times we would not digress, but we would, augment that to something that was more focused on oh these two characters in the story have a different backstory that comes up in the third act and I read the sides today and the sides today seemed pretty warm and fuzzy but I wasn't aware that this arc through the script starts with this scene and right. so foreshadowing the color so helps evoke that like, emotion yeah well, you're, you're coming at it with some sort of technical being technically correct on something and then he has an opportunity you're taking away artistic points from these people all the time and i mean at the end of the day regardless of who you are there's probably someone in la in this case it was annapurna pictures who's going to look at those dailies or look at those rushes and if they don't look a certain way they're going to make some phone calls and have some some serious questions for somebody so you're always trying to keep the cinematographer's intentions at heart while at the same time understanding that the people in LA who are financing this project might only be looking at an H264 when they see those rushes. So are you, this is interesting. So you're finding yourself because you are the, I mean, DIT is digital intermediary, right? So you're standing in, in, in between them being like the artist as a DP and then the business side being the financiers who are looking at the work and like, are you, you're the, the linchpin, so to speak. And are you finding how there's added heat because he might be doing something, but it's your, it's your job to catch if there's a problem and that like it's falling on you. And like, is that a lot of responsibility? Is it something that you think about or not really? There's definitely a lot of responsibility because you're, uh, you're the one who's, who's maintaining the integrity of the image. So I worked on a, worked briefly on a, daredevil show with marvel and me and the dp just didn't see eye to eye we just i thought we did it off he was a csc member he was from canada i spent a lot of time in canada i thought we'd we'd do well but i just never gained his his trust Hmm. so the conversations that i try to have we never never went further and and blossomed into a dialogue it was always very one-sided and he wanted uh an aesthetic for the show that was very dark and i thought that there were some minimum requirements technically that needed to be met to maintain fidelity in an image and we just butted heads there and he didn't need it and i didn't need it and there's enough work in new york and i'm lucky enough to be at a level where i am but i i recluse myself from the project we had someone else come in and uh, i moved on wow so after that happened i was really a little devastated i was like "Uh oh yeah i can't i I, just left a marvel show like what am i doing i'm I'm obviously fear must have been quite yeah i'm obviously not doing the right thing here 
then a week later I was on set with Janusz Kaminski yelling about lighting. And I mean, he's just that boisterous of a person that he demands a lot, but if you're able to deliver, he's, he's going to hold you to it, but we've hit it off and worked together on numerous projects. And I felt a little bit of redemption, like, Oh, it's not, it's not about me. It's sometimes there's situations that are beyond you. And in any creative craft, you're going to have creative differences sometimes with those you're working with. And you have to realize that as a business venture and as a creative, you you can't always separate those on set on the day. And some projects with some clients, you might not be able to meet their ideas that easily. Their idea and your idea might be different. So where are you finding the line is between just being like, you know what, I have to, I, I'm, I'm hired to do the, the work for him and I'm going to just do it even though I disagree. Where's the, how are you finding that line? And like, and are you getting better at dealing with that? Cause I think it's something that we all deal with in, in our own creative relationships. Well, it's a real participatory thing. And sometimes on set they'll be like, let's, let's throw up the 35. And you're like, I think that 27 makes a lot more sense here. And this only comes once you have the trust and there's a dialogue but then you're able to support the creative decisions and support the camera department as a whole. I was on a show, Mozart in the Jungle, and we were doing a shot on uh, Gael that was a, a push-in on like an 85 mil push-in like eight feet. We had uh, our first AC tried to nail it four times, and he's pretty much, these guys are ninjas. And he wasn't able to nail the focus after the fourth time. I called out to the walkie over camera department to pull the ND3, Stop down a stop, did it at a four. The DP's over at the monitor with the director. After we move on to the next setup, he's like, wow, George, you know, George, you nailed that wide open. And, and I was like, oh, that wasn't wide open at all. I took the ND out. Yeah, just to explain what you were talking, put into layman's terms, you made it easier for him to keep focus as the camera moved. And you'd made that call over what the specs had been laid out by the DP. I kind of usurped him, but it's it's after after the fourth shot, we're we're a team and we're all about making the day. So the the DP might have been caught up in a conversation with the director, or with the producer, or with locations about the next setup, and he wasn't aware that oh, this is this shot's taking so long because we have two inches of depth of field, and it's pretty much impossible what I'm asking. Yeah. Now, there might be DPs who are listening to this pounding the table saying they would hate a DIT doing this to them. Um, obviously, this comes down to trust and relationship because you, w- you wouldn't have done this with the Marvel guy, right? I mean, like... No. Yeah. It's, it's, it's relationships. And, and uh, I definitely feel like I probably have solid connections with probably eight DPs and they're the ones I work with most regularly. And then after that, it's, it's producers because there's not that many people on a film set that can save a producer tens of thousands of dollars. And, uh, an onset colorist working as a DIT orchestrating and implementing pretty advanced, robust workflows is someone that can save a production thousands and thousands of dollars. So those producers that have had those favorable experiences that I've been able to bring them and provide them. I'm I'm a unique member of of uh, the camera department and of the crew as a whole. The dolly grip's probably not saving the producer ten thousand dollars on post. Yeah, it's just that's it's that's that an simple. interesting time that we're in. 
because it's all moving on set. And I mean, that's where the creative juices are ebbing and flowing the most. And a lot of times no one's going to be in the same room together. The DP is going to go on to another project. The director is going to go on. The actors booked on something else. The producer might not even be in the same room again. So if you're on set with a calibrated monitor, you can really create a look that far surpasses whatever standard Rec. 709 is coming out of the camera and really hints on, at least touches the emotions that people are trying to elicit. And sometimes being able to see that on playback or being able to see that on a monitor helps bring you closer into the story and immerses you more in what you're doing. And that helps further the craft. Yeah. And I I mean, I could see how, you know, if you had come in, you're coming into this whole profession, I want to do the cameraman. I want to be the cameraman, DP. And as it transitioned into this, but at at an exact point in time, technologically, where you're affecting the look greatly, that there must just be almost not, not the same satisfaction, but like the satisfaction that you needed in terms of creative authorship, you're, you're getting to a degree. It's definitely there. I mean, there's a couple series I see where I have an iris wheel, both cameras usually on the day. And when you watch something and you see a three or four stop iris pull and it's seamless and it made the cut and it's there, that's beautiful. The DP didn't ask for that. It's, it's expected at a certain point. Yeah. You're, you're going to, if you get lucky to have a rehearsal, you're going to do it and maybe call it out. Like, you mm-hmm. know, we're, we're, that was three stops we pulled there. Is that, you know, do you want to lose ND? Do you want it to be dark here and bright here? Or for the layman, like we're the talking pull? about the exposure change, the brightness changing, um, just for the, just and it's, help people it's, keep up. It's, it's definitely rewarding. And when you see the color come back or when someone, a producer or production manager calls you after a show and says, we want to bring you in to do the final DI color because mm. we're so happy with what That's you did on set. It's pretty great. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times what you see first initially with, with content is what you're most familiar with. And sometimes it's a detriment and sometimes it's a plus, but the more familiar you are with that content initially, the more trouble you have breaking yourself from that look sometimes. So hopefully it's right or hopefully it's motivated in the direction that it yeah. it helps drive the narrative. And with working now working with the the biggest names in the industry and and providing this role on set like what has have have the insights that either they're giving or just being around this environment um have the insights provided changes for your outlook on life changes for how you are handling your the the greater the greater you like I'd say most definitely. I mean, it's just something I can see myself doing when I'm old because I can see people who are so passionate about capturing an image or about telling a story. And I I think that that's timeless. That's ageless. And that's something that if you look back at your work and you can sit down on the couch with your children or grandchildren and look back at something you did over a summer or watch a series and look at that being a, a point in time in your life, but that also being what you did so hopefully you're passionate about it but i i just take that approach i what i do is always the same i feel my approach to to a scene but what fills the frame is always different so it's always something new your approach might always be the same dealing with f-stops shutter speed vocal length 
ISO, all this stuff, all that goes into making that determination of how to expose the image. But what's in that frame, what's filling up Yeah, the that variables are always changing. Is always changing. So that always keeps it fresh for me. And that's, Puzzles. That's always, uh, it drives me. Otherwise, I think my mind has a tendency to wander pretty quickly and kind of get tired of things. But that approach to making things new definitely oh, yeah. I think film I think a lot of filmmakers are prone to just ADD about life and that what's great is that every day like it's just it's just constantly solving puzzles uh, the variables are always changing so that's the only reason that it's keeping any of us sane definitely and that approach transitions to human relationships with uh, loved ones friends family that whole thing I mean this is someone you know, your, your parents, you you were born to them. You didn't really have any choice, but you can choose to interact with them differently. Mm. And, uh, you know, every day you, you don't need to focus on something that, that might've happened years ago, but you can focus on, on the present or you can focus on your interaction with them. And that's always hopefully leading to a positive outcome. Interesting that you bring up family with, on these jobs, and they can go for weeks on end, like how are you managing the life work balance on I mean when I was on Daredevil, that was like seventy to eighty hours a week, and that was hard. I mean, if I didn't have a wife, I wouldn't have been able to pick up my my laundry. literally, I would wake up at five in the morning and get back at nine at night there was There's literally no time but the the flip side of that coin is if you can find someone you love and loves being with you. You have uh, a lot of freedom as far as being able to leave. I've, I've spent three or four months this year in Europe, just traveling around, not being not available, but if the right project comes, I'll answer my email and I usually just buy one way tickets and plan on being somewhere for a week or two or seeing what happens. I got to Rome in, uh, and you, you, in you August. Went, you went with her. I went with her. She flew early because I was finishing up a project, but I went in August, booked a one-way ticket. After being there two days, I got a phone call for this big you know, travel commercial, and they were willing to fly me from Europe back to New York to start prepping for the job. And she was like, what are you doing? We're on vacation. And I just had to step back and think, yeah, I'm on vacation. I can, I can recommend someone else, or I can let that one slide because you do have to take time for yourself and find a balance in in that work live environment. And I think I've been fortunate enough to be able to work on big enough projects and once you get those credits, they kind of secure they don't secure you, but you you have that credit that you can fall back on in well, a yeah. sense. Cuz otherwise, I mean, I'm sure that that's a scary in the beginning, that's a scary thing to turn down. Uh and especially, you know, you're saying even now you you have the Everyone has, the doubt doesn't seem to go away. No matter who I talk to in here, uh, that's not leaving. So being able to have someone to help you realize, you know, you should do. And it really is a, a, it speaks highly of your work ethic and how you conduct yourself when you refer other people for jobs that you're not available for. And the next time around, they're still calling you. Yeah. And, and your, your friends in this business are, hopefully your competition and hopefully there's a business work dynamic that you can build up with the people you work with because at some point if you get sick or something happens 
the only people that can probably be at your level are probably also in direct competition for your job. So with me in New York as an onset colorist, there's, there's only so many people I could hand a job off to if I was sick or had to go to the hospital to see my wife. So those people are my friends, but they're also my competition, but it's friendly competition. We all talk amongst each other. We know each other and you recommend someone for that job. They recommend you for another job. And that's, that's healthy and fun. Yeah. It's a, it's a hard, yeah. You got to have a certain level of, of confidence and self-esteem in yourself to be able to do that kind of thing. To, to put your competition in direct contact with one of your best clients, it takes, it takes a certain amount of confidence in your ability to deliver. And that's great. And then next time you're on set, they might be asking, Oh, well, you know that, Tom did this or, or Gus was doing that. And it's like, well, this is the way I'm doing it. We can, we can make some changes or sometimes they're like, I really like how you did this and this guy didn't do that. And it's, it's all just, it's good to interact with, with people. And, I'm, and I think as an onset colorist, I get to meet more and more DPs and see little facets of how they, you know, high key or how they do a skip bounce or how they, look at a scene from a natural light perspective that if I was just focusing on my career singularly as a DP, I'd never get to have those experiences. Yeah. And so in that looking forward, you know, are you, are you trying to take this and have it and at some point make a true pivot towards cinematography or are you like just, cause I remember I want my, um, girlfriend's a, pro- a producer and she was on set with you. Uh, yeah. a few weeks back and she was she called me and she was like you know i spoke to to jeff and he was just had like a shit-eating grin on his face and it's like i am just having the best time and that's like why are you thinking about moving away from that or it's like no i'm just having the best time i'm just having the best time and if i uh i'm kind of cocky and stuck up and <laughs> i turn down a lot of scripts that i read i read like two or three a month and I like playing with techno cranes and flying around in helicopters and shutting down half a Soho. And uh, I hope to get to that point myself Yeah. one day. But if I'm not there, if I can be uh, in the back of the pursuit arm flying around town with them, I'm going to be happy doing that because I feel that I'm, I'm close to my vision of where I see things. Yeah. Are, would, you, um, if it, would you be upset if, or disappointed or like let down if you if you if that never happened. Um, I mean, I think it's happening. I just finished yeah. uh, a short film. I chose to shoot that on thirty five mil, and uh, that got into some film fests in L A. It premiered at the Man's Chinese Theater. So I do digital all the time, and some people are like, "Why do you want to shoot film?" Because because film's new to me. I I know the dynamic response range of a Dragon or a Phantom Flex 4K. I know how to make a pretty image with an Alexa. Something totally foreign to me is is using a Panavision XL2 with Kodak 5219. It's funny. This is the truth of our whole generation. It's this dark area for me that's really... I'm I'm confident when I have a Dragon or an Alexa that I can... can bring back something that's that's great but when i was in pre-production and the first day on set for uh the short film it was called it has to be you i was sweating i it was just great i mean i knew how i was gonna light it i'd done my work location scouting but 
that first day when your eye is through that camera and that reflex is turning and you get that little stutter that you see when the film's going through the gate, you're like, whoa. So I, uh, I want to shoot more film. Yeah, that vulnerability and like, you know, to be unsure a little bit is definitely um, creatively healthy. Yeah, and I was able to take time. I was on a on a series called Happyish, and I talked to the DP. I said I'm shooting a short film. Panavision's behind it. I need four days to do it. I want to take Friday and Monday off. He was like, "Do it." He was happy about it. We were talking about lenses and talking about how to get raking shots with cranes and all this stuff. And I was fortunate enough to be able to be in an industry where I have colleagues on set that are able to lend their expertise to me or put me in touch with their friends. And uh, it's all favoritism and nepotism at a certain point, but being able to call in some favors and make something is really a beautiful thing that if I was an outsider, I wouldn't have that connection to that community and that community's filmmakers here in New York. And I feel blessed to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, I don't know, man. I feel like that that's a great place to end it. A, um, it's really interesting hearing about, you know, when you go from pretty like unsure beginnings to making a lot of the uh, blockbusters that are in the movie theater. It's pretty wild. It's pretty crazy. I mean, it's a fun place to be. December 18th, I think tomorrow, Sisters comes out. So I think, you know, Tina Fey is going to have a hard time competing with The Force. But uh, it's still movies in the theater. I can tell my aunt about it. She likes romantic, girly comedies. She's going to be right there, see my name on the screen. And that's something that you can't help but feel good about. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Well, thanks for sitting down. I appreciate your candor. Definitely. Thank you for having me. 